0: Okay, we're looking at the minor prophets. It's really an unfortunate name. Uh, I think Augustine of Hippo, the church father, is the one that first coined this section of the Bible, uh, the minor prophets. Uh, Not minor in the sense that they're less than, but minor in the sense that they're shorter than the the major prophets, which are longer books. Um, The Hebrew Bible, these 12 prophets from... Hosea to to Malachi, are just one book, one Torah scroll, and that book or Torah scroll is called the book of the 12. Now, why this part of our Bible? Well, pretty simply, I think God raised up these 12 prophets to keep the train on the tracks. What's the train? Israel, God's people. What's the tracks? It's God's call on them. And what's God's call on them? It's the same call that has always been on his people. You are a chosen people. God says, I picked you uh, to be a holy nation, uh, to be a whole nation of priests, uh, declaring the praises of God, of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I mean, to sum this up, It's pretty stunning to think about, especially in light of what we just heard from Missy. Um, God didn't save his church just for heaven. He saved his church to form a people by which he would partner with to repair the whole world. And see, when this train gets off the tracks, God's gonna do something about it. And what he does in this part of the story is he raises up prophets. He sends them to his people to warn them, to call them to repent, to return, to get back on track. And what we're gonna see as we study the prophets is we're gonna, we're gonna learn so much about what's wrong with our world, how our world is so broken, why it's broken, and what God is gonna do about the brokenness. We're also gonna see, I think, God's dilemma in this whole thing. Because God is such a partnering God. I mean, from the very beginning, God wants to partner with the human race. That's why he made us in his image. It's why he entrusted his whole creation to Adam and Eve to reflect him. God says, would you please reflect me? Would you reflect my image, uh, my glory into all creation? We know how that went. So God doesn't give up. Then you have Abraham, and through Abraham, God is going to raise up another family, which will become a nation, which will partner with God to reflect God and his glory into all creation. I mean, this is Israel's call. And you could sum it up in, in a verse we learned earlier this year, Micah 6, verse 8, but this is what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Let's put ourselves in God's shoes. What's God to do when the very instrument by which he's going to repair the world becomes not only disinterested in God, but also disinterested in doing justice, expressing mercy, and only concerned about its own welfare, making money, enjoying the good life? What's God to do? And see, through the prophets, we get a window into God's heart, into his very soul. We see God's passionate love for his people, but also his passionate love for the world. We see his passion for justice, to make things right, but we also see his heart of mercy. And in this, what's going to win? Is it gonna be God's passionate love for his people? Israel, I can't let you go. I can't give you up. Or is it gonna be his passionate love for the world? Is it gonna be um, his passion for justice to make everything right? Or is it gonna be mercy, his heart of mercy? I find this incredibly applicable because this same call is, is on us today and I think God is still faced with much of the same dilemma, which is why we need to hear the prophets. Now, we come to the prophet Amos today. <laughs> He's a heavy hitter. Get ready. Um, little background. To, to understand Amos, we have to understand uh, the time of Amos because Amos, like all the prophets, is, is especially speaking to his time. They're not just talking about things that are going to happen hundreds, thousands of years out there. A few of the things that they say will, will be that, but most of what the prophets are saying is they are addressing the people of their time. So the time in which Amos is addressing, Israel now has been in the land for four, or 500 years, depending on when you date the exodus. From the very beginning, as we said last time, they've been sowing seeds of destruction, uh, the biggest seed uh, that they've sown to their own destruction is their civil war, uh, which creates, it splits the nation of Israel in half, a north and a south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. Um, of these two, Israel is the bigger, the larger, the stronger, the more prosperous. Uh, Judah is, is the smaller. Amos is from Judah. But he's gonna prophesy against Israel. That might be like someone from Canada coming down and speaking prophecy against the United States of America. Um, I mean, he's getting out of his jurisdiction a little bit. Uh, But our first verse tells us some important things about Amos, uh, contextual things. Amos 1, if you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 745. And it says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, The vision that he saw concerning Israel's two years before the earthquake. Wow, that's really dating this whole thing. When Uzziah was king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Johash, the king of Israel. So this Amos is from Tekoa. Tekoa is a town in the desert, in the Dead Sea region. Um, It's a very short walk from Bethlehem. If you went to Israel with me, it's right where that Herodian is, uh, that palace that Herod built on a hill that he had made. Um, That's where Tekoa is. In fact, I'll just give you a quick picture just so you can uh, see it. That would have been the front yard looking out of the town of Tekoa. And that would have been uh, the world of Amos because Amos is a shepherd. And that is where the shepherd shepherds the sheep in the desert. And I know you're wondering, like, what do they eat? Rocks? No, Um, there's just enough grass there. In fact, that's exactly the same place where David shepherds his sheep. That's where David runs from Saul. That's where Jesus, for 40 days, is is tempted. A lot of story takes place there. Now, Amos lives at a time when both Israel and Judah have never been stronger, both politically and economically. In fact, let me just show you this PowerPoint of a map so you can just get a flavor. Um, If you look closely, First of all, all the colors there, with the exception of the right and the bottom, are Israel and Judah, okay? And the dark green is what the northern kingdom, Israel, usually is. And you can see how much Jeroboam has expanded it um, all the way down uh, and then all the way up and then even include uh, the tan there. He has doubled, more than doubled, the land of Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, is that darker uh, pink, and then the lighter pink is how much uh, King Uzziah has expanded his kingdom. Now, not only have their borders expanded, which means uh, more land, more towns, more cities, uh, but the most important thing now is that they are controlling the trade routes. And that is one of the most important trade routes in the ancient world, and the trade routes is what brings in enormous amounts of wealth into a country. Israel's wealthy, incredibly wealthy. Now what did this produce for them? Well, it essentially produced two classes of people, a professional class and a working class. And we see this when we go to Amos two, verse six. This is what the Lord says, for three sons of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Amos likes to use this clause for three sins, even four. It's to say their sin is way over the top. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, they trample on the heads of the poor as the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Now, what's being described here, as I said, are two classes of people that have that have. Evolved out of this situation. You have a professional class and a working class, and the professional class has this enormous buying power because of all the wealth that's coming in that they can charge exorbitant prices for even the basic necessities of life, like clothes, food, sandals, that caused the working class to go into debt to just get these things. Now, in the ancient world, if if you went too far in debt, you didn't just declare bankruptcy, that didn't exist. You had to sell yourself into slavery to the person in which you were in debt to. So here's what you have. You have this huge discrepancy between two classes of people with the working class being driven into servitude to the wealthy class. That sounds familiar a little bit, doesn't it? And that's why Amos says in verse seven that the poor are being trampled on. They are being denied justice. And this is the very issue that Amos is speaking into that he is going to address. Here are just a few more snapshots from the book of Amos. Amos 5, verse 11, turn there. Love this church. I love the the sound of the turning of the pages. Um, You levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose a tax on their gain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions because of all these taxes, and yet you do not live in them, you've planted lush vineyards, yet you do not drink their wine. So they're building these mansions with huge vineyards. Just picture all the wine that's stacked in their basements. But they're nothing but showpieces to show off how wealthy they are. And then look at the next verse. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins There are those who oppress the innocent. They take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Literally, it says they turn aside the poor in the gates. Now listen, this kind of thing is always a big deal to God, always. That's why the first two chapters, God pronounces his judgment on the surrounding nations. And all the judgments are against their crimes against humanity. From everything, it's everything from slavery to human trafficking. The reason why God pronounced judgments on the other nations for these things is, is, is pretty basic. God hates injustice. Whatever form it is. And think about all the ways, not just in ancient times, but throughout history, even today, where humanity takes advantage of humanity, how humanity can use humanity, how humanity can abuse humanity for its own ends towards its own gain, especially at the expense of the weak So Amos is right when he uses this imagery. He says the poor are trampled on, the needy are actually sold, the weak are being oppressed. Nothing stirs God's heart more. Nothing arouses his anger more and gets him to act, especially when it's his people. And that's why in 3 verse 1, uh, God says to Amos, out of all the families of the earth, I, I, I picked you. Therefore, because of your special calling, I am holding you responsible for all of your sins. And here's one thing that is easy to deduct when you read uh, the scriptures from cover to cover is that God's heart is on the side of the poor. He burns with love, compassion for the underdog, the weak. It's all over the scriptures. I can give you just a few right now. Uh, Psalm 146, seven to nine. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Or how about Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18? For the Lord your God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. It's all over the Bible. When I'm introduced, when I go places, in fact, last week, when I was in Thailand, I had to speak uh, at, at something, and uh, this is Rodvin Salkum, a pastor of a church in, called Crossroads in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know how God is introduced so often in the Bible? A father to the fatherless. A defender to the of widows and the weak. He identifies with the powerless. His heart is such that he defends the bullied, he stands with the, with the bullied, he, he, he judges the bullied. Now think about this. This is important to consider. If you're starting to think about a football game, just come back with me. (laughs) God's whole plan to repair a broken world does not begin with Jesus, it begins with a man named Abraham, who is described in the text, our New Testament text, the book of Hebrews, as a stranger a stranger in a strange land. In fact, he's going to be called a Hebrew. That's not what he calls himself. That's what they call him. Hebrew means an outsider, a stranger, a weirdo. When Abraham's people become large and and dwell in Egypt, the Egyptians are going to call them Hebrews. They don't call themselves Hebrews. Hebrews. That's what they're called, they're called outsiders. I mean, look at Genesis 43, verse 32, this little text uh, that, that speaks to this. This is Jacob and his family when they're living in Egypt. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with those outsiders, those Hebrews, for that is detestable to the Egyptians. Or how about this, in in Genesis 15, when God makes that covenant with Abraham, where he walks between the pieces, not once, but twice, to say to Abraham, I am so bound to you and to your people. And in that, he says, Abraham, let me tell you, though, what's going to happen. Let me fast forward into the story Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be slaves and mistreated there. In other words, the people that God picked for 400 years, he pushed this into them. What it, what it, Feels like to be a stranger in a strange land, what it feels like to be a slave. Then he redeems them, not so they can go to heaven, but so they can be placed in promised land. Now, let me just show you this right now for a second, where God placed them. You grew up hearing of the Fertile Crescent, right? Right? junior high, high school. It's all that pink there. That's where all the the great ancient civilizations evolved and grew. Uh, Empires grew in those places, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians in the east, the Egyptians down there in the south. And, And the reason they grew in those places, because the rest of that is desert. And you have the Tigris and Euphrates River there and the Nile River there and and, and civilization needed that kind of fertility to be able to grow and to blossom. So that's where civilization grew. And if you look what's right in the middle where all funnels down into a piece of real estate the size of New Jersey, 65 miles wide, 110 miles tall, where it most funnels in, That's promised land. I'll tell you what scholars call that area. They call a land bridge because this is the part of the ancient world that connects people's cultures and all the nations of the world. Do you think it's coincidence that God says, that's the land that I want for you? To be my people who I picked a holy nation, a city set on a hill, a light to the darkness. On top of that, one of the most important highways runs right through that little funnel connecting all the cultures of the world. The whole world traveled on that highway. God set this up so that the whole world would come to Israel, where Israel could be God's people, putting God on display for the world to see. And what did that look like? Well, let's go back to that verse. But what does the Lord require of you, Israel, but to do justice, to love mercy? to walk humbly with your God. Now doing justice, that word justice in Hebrew is, is, is the Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat is, is the act of treating everyone fairly, treating everyone with equality, with the honor, with the dignity that is their due because they have been made in the image of God. Every single human being, according to the text, has been made in God's image, irrespective of background, race, status. Mishpat is treating people according to that worth that God has infused within every human being. Now, Mishpat also... Um, has this notion of of, of rectifying things where there is unfair, where there is inequality, and it's it's, it's bringing justice to injustice, and it's it's doing that through systems of justice, Uh, whether it be laws, whether it be courts, whether it be judges, whether it be kings. Now, in the ancient world, there were four categories of people who were vulnerable to injustice. The widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. Now, sometimes the word poor could also encompass all of those, uh, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, because poor in, in our Old Testament means pretty much anyone who is powerless and in chaos. So if you were a widow, an orphan, a stranger, or poor, you in the ancient world had no social power. And if war or famine or even a minor form of social unrest occurred where it goes 20 degrees below zero, you you were hoping you were gonna survive because you didn't know if you had the resources to do so. Now if you wanna know what the Torah is about, and what I mean by the Torah are the first five books of the Old Testament, which now means the whole Old Testament. All those laws. That so many Christians say, thank goodness that we are freed from the burden of all those things. Actually, a lot of those laws have to do with how Israel was to do justice, how it was to express mercy, namely to the widow, to the orphan, to the stranger, and to the poor. And so it's through Torah that God set up this whole system of justice and mercy because Israel through Torah was was charged to create this culture of mishpat, of of, of justice, of justice to the poor and to the vulnerable. Let me show you another just uh, image that, that, that I take people to in the land. Anybody know what this is? Don't yell it out if you've been to Israel. It's actually a part of an ancient city. That thing going through the middle, that ditch, is a sewer system. And that's the foundations of city gates. You see the, the chambers there, there's three to the right and there's three corresponding to the left. Uh, this actually is a date that dates back to Solomon, Solomon built this. and. Uh, but what's the significance of, of the city gates? Well, the city gates in the ancient world is, is, is where life was happening. It's where people wanted their shops. It's where people hung out. It's where the elders of the city sat. Uh, and, and, and why are the elders sitting? Well, the elders are sitting because they're holding court. The, the, the elders of the city are the judges. They're, they're doing justice. Justice happened locally. Um, the, the city gates also, those chambers uh, are, are what stored the city's water, the city's food, the resources. A lot of times these were two stories high. The second floor would have been a shelter, uh, for, for a hostel for, for the stranger, uh, where, where, where the stranger could stay. So this is the part of the city that, that expressed not only justice, uh, the, the judges sat here, but it's also the place of the city that expressed Mercy. That's why in Deuteronomy 14, verse 28 and 29, God says this. He says, At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow who lived in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So think about this. Every three years, and this is literally how this reads, the NIV takes it out, the tithe is to go to your city gates. And all of that tithe, that food, those resources, are for the poor, the widow, and the vulnerable. This is why the Bible oftentimes speaks about the poor and the alien within your gate. How big are your gates? How much are you concerned about the poor? And in Amos 5 verse 12, Amos says, For I know how many are offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the city gates. Another thing God instructed to all the landowners every harvest season listen to this it's in Leviticus 23:22 it's in several other places as well when you reap the harvest of your land do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you i am the lord your god in other words what god is saying is don't harvest the margins of your fields Landowners were not allowed to squeeze out every penny that their resources provided for them. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. God hits this from still yet another angle. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, Do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. A sheaf is a stack of wheat. I love it. A kid just goes, what's a sheaf? That was a great question. God says, leave that. Don't go back and say, that's mine. And the reason why I I, I love this is this isn't charity. This is generosity. You don't have any centralized government. There's no Uncle Sam who's robbing Paul to pay Peter. And what this pushed into every landowner is God is saying, yes, that land is yours. It's yours to properly steward. But the fruit of the land, that's not all yours. Some of it is yours, but some of it is theirs. And who are the theirs? The poor, the needy, the immigrant. And you know what else? Everyone could look at your field and see how much you harvested and took for yourself and how much you left to the poor. This is the kind of system, a culture that God is setting up. Or how about this aspect that that God also instructs in, in Deuteronomy 15, four, verse five. He says, there need be no poor people among you for in the land the Lord you're giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will bless you. There's going to be enough. And then God instructs this to ensure that there is not a poor person among them. He says in verses one and two, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for the canceling of debts has been proclaimed. Think about that. Every seven years, all debt canceled, released. And then God says this in verses 7 to 8. He's like, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Again, we're not talking about a token handout. We're talking about radical generosity. Generosity. And we're starting to see now how God's concern for the poor is so strong that if Israel lives according to God's instruction, there would be the opportunity for every poor person to break out of their poverty. And this is more than just a system of justice that God is setting up, but God calls for his people to be just, to do justice, to live justly. In fact, there's a second word that speaks about this person-to-person justice, and it's the Hebrew word tzedakah, or tzedak. That word is all over the Bible, and might be the most important descriptive kind of word that God wants us to have because we translate it as righteous or righteousness. Now, there is a big difference between how Christians and Hebrews understand the word righteous and righteousness. For Christians, righteousness oftentimes means godliness, it means holiness, it means This this standing of moral perfection. In fact, we see righteousness uh, in in individualistic terms. Um, It's this, this internal state that we don't have, but we need to have in order to get into the next life. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I'm telling you the Hebrew understanding of righteousness is not that. It's not individualistic. It's, 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 it's less of a condition of moral perfection, and it's more about how I live out rightly, how, how, how I bring right and I make right in my world. In fact, if you want to know what it literally means, uh, tzedek or tzedekah is the act of disadvantaging yourself to bring advantage to someone else. It's giving, your, giving up yourself to give to someone else. It's, it, can, it can literally be termed generosity, radical generosity. It's acting on behalf of the underdog. That's, what righteous, that's the Hebrew understanding of righteousness, of sedek. In fact, the rabbis say that if everyone lived out tzedekah or sedek, there would be no need for mishpat, for a system of judges and, and justice because... Nothing would ever need to be rectified. We live in a just world. The other amazing thing is when, when you read the the Old Testament in its original language, you see how often mishpat and tzedakah are paired together. It's all over the Bible. First, about God. Um, I, I could take you almost to 100 places where, where these two words, mishpat and tzedakah, uh, describe God. I'll take you to a couple of my favorites. Psalm 33, verse 5. It says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. He loves mishpat and tzedakah. The earth is full of his unfailing love, his hesed. Psalm 72, 1 and 2. Endow the king with your justice, with your mishpat, O God, the royal son, with your righteousness, with your tzedakah. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice, mishpat and tzedakah are the foundations of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. This is all over the Bible describing God. I love uh, when, it, when it describes us, his people. Job, Job 29, 12 to 16. Job says, Because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. He said, I put on Sedekah as my clothing. I put on Mishpat was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind, I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. If you want to know the ethic that Israel is called to live by, it's that right there. That's righteousness, that's fulfilling Torah. This goes all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 18, that incredible chapter uh, that starts with Abraham welcoming strangers. Of course, we find out that one of those strangers is God himself and that God comes uh, to tell Abraham what he is about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it goes from Abraham welcoming strangers to now all of a sudden Abraham standing before God as if God is uh, the judge and he is in God's courtroom and He just like, how dare you? how dare you, the judge of the universe, destroy Sodom? He goes from showing hospitality to to, to priesting. But right in the heart of this, listen to what God says about Abraham in, in verses 18 to 19. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him For what purpose? To direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing tzedakah and mishpat so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So justice acting justly, bringing justice to injustice, living radically generous lives, disadvantaging ourselves to bring advantage to someone else. This is not on the periphery of what it means to be God's people. This is front and center. This is the deal. And this is what Israel's gotten away from. All the wealth, all the prosperity infected them with greed and selfishness, which resulted in gross injustices of every kind. And God says, I, I have had enough. So God raises up a prophet. I love this, not from the professional class. Look at Amos 7. Verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah, who's the high priest, saying, shut up, dude. We don't wanna hear anything you have to say. In fact, I think it was more than a shut up, dude. I bet Amos was punched in the face, beaten to the ground and all this. Amos stands up and says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but just a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore trees. (laughs) I love this. But the Lord took me from the... The tending of the flock, and he said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. God always speaks through the the missies of the world more than his professional class. Know that. When God raises up a priest to redeem his people from Egypt, he raises up a shepherd. When God raises up a king who's going to foreshadow the Messiah, he raises up a shepherd in David. When God raises up a prophet to speak his word, he finds a shepherd. He gets Amos. God is a shepherd. He will shepherd his people, and he does it through shepherds. Now listen to what this shepherd Amos says or God the good shepherd says to the shepherd Amos to his people. And I really love Eugene Peterson's The Message because I think he captures how this would have been heard in Amos's day. They buy and they sell upstanding people. People for them are only things, ways of making money. They'd sell a poor man for a pair of shoes. They'd sell their own grandmother. They grind the penniless into the dirt. They shove the luckless into the ditch. Everyone and his brother sleeps with the sacred whore as sacrilege against my holy name. Stuff they've exhorted from the poor is piled up to the shrine of their God while they sit around drinking wine they've conned from their victims. Listen to this, you cows of Bashan grazing on the slopes of Samaria, you women. He literally just called them fat cows. Mean to the poor, cruel to the down and out, indolent and pampered. You demand of your husbands, bring us a tall, cool drink. People hate this kind of talk. Raw truth is never popular, but here it is, bluntly spoken, because you run Rashad over the poor. You take the bread right out of their mouths. You're never going to move into the luxury homes that you have built. You're never going to drink the wine from the expensive vineyards that you've planted. I know precisely the extent of your violations, the enormity of your sins, appalling. You bully right-living people, take bribes right and left, kicking the poor when they're down. Justice is a lost cause. Evil is an epidemic. Decent people throw up their arms. protest and rebuke are, are useless, a waste of breath. I can't stand your religious gatherings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious products, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I could take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? He's talking to the church. They're still going to church. They're still singing their songs. They're still preaching their sermons. Great word today, pastor. And then Monday through Saturday, living out in justice. Do you want to know what I want, says the Lord? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. In fact, this is that famous culminating phrase in Amos that many of us know where God says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those two words there are, are mishpat and sedekah. That's all I want, says God. In fact, what might be missed in this imagery, it's actually a bad translation, ever-flowing stream. Uh, It's actually a a rushing wadi, and it would have been something that Amos would have witnessed every winter when the winter rains would uh, come down in sheets up in the Judah Mountains, and they would start to come down, and when it got down to to Tekoa, where he lived, oftentimes it would be something like the Niagara Falls, just taking out everything in its sight. And that's the image that God uses through Amos to say, Sedecha, mishpat." I want it to just gush like the Niagara Falls. How is that to happen? Not politics. You kidding me? Politics? Politicians who live in their mansions, there are millions of dollars in their bank accounts, pontificating on how we are to be compassionate. That's a clown show. Give me an amen. It's not religion either. There is a new term today called a social justice warrior. They're the new Pharisees of our day. They too go around pontificating on what they do and using social justice as a weapon against people to show themselves to be better and to knock other people down. Don't go there. Religion, politics, all done for personal gain. God says when you give, your right hand shouldn't even know what your left hand is doing. We don't talk. We don't blog about it. We don't shout from the mountaintops. This is what we do. This is what you should do. We keep our mouths shut. God in... Amos 5, two times, says, seek me, Israel, and live. And another time he says, in in 5 verse 14, seek good and not evil. How can we even know what is good? How can we be good apart from God? We need God. God. which is why over and over again Amos just shouts to Israel, repent, turn from your selfishness, turn from your pride, turn from your arrogance, turn back to God. Because here's what happens. When we know God, when we truly know him, we also start to know our sin. We start to see our poverty. We start to see that apart from God and his mercy, we are all poor, we are all the orphan, we are all the widow, we are all beggars. And you say, well, what's so good about that? I don't care whether that's good or bad. That is just what is. But here's what's good. James two, verse five, God says, I choose the poor. God always chooses the poor. God's heart bleeds for the poor. God, God moves towards the poor. God identifies with the poor. God exalts the poor. And if you don't know that, you don't know God. And Christianity, sadly, to say to you health and wealthers, is not a rags to riches thing. It's about ultimate riches becoming rags. That's how much God loves poor. He loves it so much that he became poor. He became the poorest of poor. The ultimate insider became the ultimate outsider. The Bible says he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. The one whose home was heaven became Homeless," he said, "The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And the one who rested his head at the bosom of his father, he gave up his father and became fatherless. "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do this? Because we were all that lost. We were all that poor. We were all that estranged. We were all that helpless. that God in Christ left riches, and became rags. And he came to this world to take on all of our rags, our moral, our physical, our spiritual rags, all of them, to give us the riches that are found in Christ. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's the righteousness of God revealed in Christ. Righteousness. The one with all the advantage, who so disadvantaged himself to advantage us, who gave up everything to give everything to us. Look at the cross. I mean, it screams radical generosity. It's the waterfall of God's grace, his justice, his righteousness. And you know where we're going to find Christ? Not in our riches. We are always going to find Christ in our poverty. And not just in our poverty, but when we move out of our poverty into another person's poverty, we're going to find him there too. Francis of Assisi, who gave his whole life to the poor, and inspired literally thousands upon thousands of people to give their lives to the poor as well. Before he came to Christ, actually, he was a pretty wealthy, part of the nobility, arrogant, and he'd have all kinds of nasty names to describe himself. And he says uh, one day he was on his horse, returning from the Crusades, wondering what his life held next, and on the road there in front of him was a leper. And all of Francis's life, he had nightmares about lepers. Le- lepers just absolutely disgusted him. And uh, his biographer, Val- Valerie Martin, writes this. He could ride on, but there w- because there was no reason to stop, he could simply throw down his last coin to the leper as he passed by. But his eyes fell upon his own expensive, well-fitting glove, And it dawned on him that nothing covered that leper's misshapen hands. He stopped his horse, he swung one one leg over the saddle and dropped to the ground beside his horse and made his way to the leper. The leper then turned to him and extending his hand to him. The old familiar reaction of disgust and nausea started to rise up in Francis, nearly choking him. But then he dropped to one knee before the outstretched hand which was this lumpish stub and carefully, Francesco, Francis, takes the leper's hand, pressed it tenderly to his lips, bringing sudden tears to his eyes. And the two of them stood up and they embraced each other. Their faces pressed close together and Francis' heart was filled with joy. And Francis of Assisi later says about this event, that day I met Jesus. And he said, the moment my life was changed was when I got off my horse. We just need to get off our horse. If Amos were here today, what would he say to us? What would he say to you? What would he say to me? Jesus' heart is so bound with the poor. He says, whatever you do for them, you did it for me. (laughs) God, would you continue to raise up a church that does justice, that loves mercy, and that walks humbly Humbly with you, O oh God. Where repentance is needed, God, would you cause our hearts to repent?